The healthcare industry has undergone transformational change in the past 10 years, especially as it relates to the implementation of technology. Even so, there's much more to do and many companies are out there doing it, but you don't know about them. At Intrepid Healthcare, our podcast will bring you the crazy ones, the rebels, the troublemakers, the ones who see things differently. The people that are crazy enough to think they can change the world in healthcare. So sit tight and enjoy as we tell the story of another thought leading trailblazer. Welcome back to Intrepid Healthcare as we start this very special series focused on the rapidly emerging topic of direct primary care. I'm your host, Joe Lavelle, and I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Kat Quinn. Kat is a healthcare startup consultant, the founder of Sheep Guru, and the expert we all need to know about direct primary care. Good morning, Kat. Hope you're as excited as I am to kick off this great series. Good morning, Joe. Thank you for having me again. I'm very excited about our free market healthcare fall series on direct primary care. <laughs> Absolutely. Kat, could you take a few seconds to remind the audience what direct primary care is? Direct primary care in layman terms is cutting out the middleman insurance, therefore empowering the doctor-patient relationship. Not only does that improve patient satisfaction, but it also improves operational efficiencies and reduces costs through clinical workflow. And it's just good for the doctor and patient because it reduces cost for all stakeholders while increasing quality time with the doctor, which is the main important thing of direct primary care is the time that you get to spend, which optimizes your health and wellness. Perfect. We're going to get right to it today. We're joined by Chris Schaffner, Chief Risk Officer of Physician Care Direct. Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you, Joe. Good morning. Good morning, Kat. Good morning. Thanks so much for making the time to be here today. Before we begin our discussion, could you take a few seconds and tell the audience about you and your background, Chris? Sure. Well, I come from the employee benefits world, about 20 years plus of experience uh, that started on the 401k side. And then about 15 years ago, I moved to the employee benefits world and quickly became aware of exactly how the TPA process works, how claims are paid, why they're paid, and just got into a lot of the IT weaknesses that are still in healthcare. So we've got a unique perspective on what is possible and what is realistic as far as patient payments and patient-centeredness go as far as the existing healthcare infrastructure. Awesome. Could you also take a minute or so and provide our audience with a 10,000-foot overview of Physician Care Direct? Well, Physician Care Direct, we started five years ago with a simple premise, and that is what we saw being passed legislatively to fix health care, we didn't believe was going to fix health care. So when we got together, myself coming from the broker consultant background, I have two partners, one from the IT side, one actually uh, practicing urologist. And we said, if we were going to fix health care, what would we do? And it all came down to one thing. And that is, if you want to fix the system, you have to fix primary care first. And if you look at all the models of care out there, we think that the direct primary care model is one of those models that could really do a lot to accelerate fixing the system. So what we have done at Physician Care Direct is put together essentially a health plan. So the world is going to move quickly to self-funded plans for most employers that are going to remain in the benefits world. 
And if you have one of those plans, then you need to be actively managing the risk associated with that benefit. And that's what the Physician Care Direct Employer Health Ownership Plan, or EHOP as we call it, does. Perfect. Thank you for that. Let's start with this one, Chris. What is a healthcare fiduciary? Well, as I mentioned, when you're going to be a self-funded plan, and as many people are today, the rules that govern that plan aren't from your state department of insurance. It's the federal rules under ERISA that was put in place in 1974. So what a fiduciary does is you are the one ultimately responsible for under 401k, it would be selecting the investments that are available, making sure the um, participants are properly educated about those investment options. And you are doing things very by the book, if you will. What many people don't realize is they have that same fiduciary responsibility with their health plan. So rather than just going and buying whatever's off the shelf from your local large carrier that may be your only option in the state, you should be doing a little bit more due diligence on that. So it really has to do with the relationship between a trustee and a beneficiary. So in this case, the plan sponsor being the employer, the beneficiary being the individual employee. Great. Kat, you want to go with the next one? Yes. Chris, what is your overall view of the current healthcare system and what new models of care have shown potential to change the future? Well, if you look at the overall system, you have got now fewer and fewer carriers out there. I think we're down to four major carriers and we are rapidly seeing consolidation in the provider space. So ultimately, I think what the Affordable Care Act has done has hastened this consolidation of everyone. And the insurance companies, because now their margins are fixed at 15% with the medical loss ratio, and larger providers buying up additional practices to insulate themselves and referral patterns, I don't see where the patient-centeredness that everyone talks about fits into this existing morass that we have as a, as a healthcare system. I do believe that self-insurance for employers is going to give a lot of people freedom that they didn't realize they had to make decisions on their own. And we really do believe that the direct primary care model, if you could change the, the large payer's way of purchasing care, that really does have a patient-centric benefit to it that other models of care don't. And here's what I mean by that. In a direct primary care model, because you, the individual, are paying the doctor themselves, you now have placed that doctor in a fiduciary responsibility with you, the patient, right? You're paying them for their services, and they are then delivering services to you. When you look at that model, that makes sense to a lot of people. The current model, and we have seen this from large institutional providers here in North Carolina to, to Arkansas, Alabama, Texas, Washington State, and that is many of those current large systems use primary care essentially as a loss leader, as the $2.99 igloo cooler at Walmart just to get you to come in to buy something else. Because many of these institutional providers, quite frankly, are paid on production, which means how many referrals have you sent to dermatology, radiology, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. So it doesn't place necessarily the patient in the middle of that. Chris, how would companies with less than 50 employees benefit from direct care? And what's the number of employees where companies won't benefit? Well, that's an interesting question. As we've gone through the past five years, 
Now the rules in place say if you have fewer than 50 employees, you're under no obligation to offer health care as a benefit. So you don't have to offer health insurance. And quite frankly, as a professional, I would say that there are very few businesses with fewer than 50 employees that have any business offering health insurance as a benefit at all. Because of the way that pricing is now working in the market, many of those employers are going to be far better off saying, look, employees, I'm going to maybe adjust your W-2. Maybe I'm going to give you some flexible work time. Maybe I'm going to give you some money into your flexible spending account. The best thing that they can do, quite frankly, let's just say a little restaurant in downtown Fairhope where you are, Joe, if they've got nine or 10 employees, putting in a group insurance plan is going to be unaffordable. But if they had a DPC practice that was available to them and they were to pay the monthly membership fee of even $75 a month, well, that $900 a year that that employer is paying on behalf of that employee now becomes a very meaningful benefit because the individual mandate is just that. It's on the individual and having the employer pay for a direct primary care relationship certainly would insulate that person from a lot of unnecessary out-of-pocket costs that they may experience. The challenge when you get with larger companies is that they have employees that are in various different areas, whether it's different parts of the city or whether it's different states across the country. So being able to equate benefits across a larger population than that makes it difficult for direct primary care to scale. Now, I say that with a caveat because we told our own state here in North Carolina that if they were going to reform Medicaid, that they should pursue what's called a 1332 waiver from CMS, which would allow them to take all the money for expansion, all the money for subsidies, all that money, and basically redesign the system themselves. Think about Massachusetts. So this is literally the opportunity for a state to be the innovator. And in that proposal to our government, we said, look, If everyone has a medical home relationship like this and we can create an exchange product that is a consumer-driven medical home, so that may be an individual DPC provider, that may be a large uh, urgent care facility that's got multiple locations around the city. But as long as they're all judged equally on outcomes and we've got fair pricing and we've got transparency as far as what the services go, We think that's a model that could scale, but it's going to take someone like a state government, specifically under a Medicaid movement, to really make direct primary care scale to where other employers would view it as a way to, okay, well, I can do that too. In today's world, we just don't have the density nor the consistency of what's being offered in these direct primary care practices. Tell us about IRC 213D involving FSA, HSA, and HRA, and how that might allow DPC to expand. Internal Revenue Code Section 213D has to do with what items that you spend your money on in healthcare can be paid on a tax-preferred basis or on a tax-deductible basis. So 213D is the section of code that says, If you've got money in a traditional flexible spending account or you've got money in an HSA plan or your employer is offering you a health reimbursement arrangement, 213D is that list of items that's eligible to be paid by that tax-preferred account. Currently, there's a little bit of disagreement amongst people in the 
the IRS as to whether or not direct primary care's monthly membership fees actually qualify as care or insurance. So under today's rules, that membership fee is not eligible to be paid out of those tax-preferred counts. If it were, then that certainly is going to give any individual employee a better opportunity to spend their money on what we would consider to be a very basic value-based purchasing strategy. Chris, the news has been talking about co-ops closing up shop. What's your theory on why this is happening? Well, there, there are a lot of different prevailing theories, but in my opinion, you had people that did not have the experience in running health plans that were given large amounts of money and told essentially, go sign up everybody you can sign up and don't worry about your losses because they're going to be backstopped by the reimbursement payments by the federal government. So no one was really actively managing the risk associated with those plans. And many of those plans were doing things. I can tell you of one in Louisiana that we heard that chose not to use a traditional third-party administrator and a traditional network to pay claims that they created virtually their own software platform that had nothing to do with ICD-9 or being prepared for ICD-10. They were essentially just using it like a check register. That's an extreme case, but that did happen. My brother is actually part of the group in South Carolina that lost his coverage due to that co-op's failure. And he met with the people that were in leadership of that, and none of them really had healthcare background, certainly had not run an insurance company before. So I think that um, maybe the motive was in the right, right vein, trying to get more competition amongst carriers. But at this stage, when you give money to these co-ops and the co-ops turn around and go to your local Blue Cross or Cigna or Aetna and say, we need to use your TPA and your networks. Have you really created any competition? What is the best health insurance strategy for employers? If you have 50 employees or less in today's world, I would not offer group insurance at all as a benefit. I would find other ways to effectively compensate my employees for what they do. You can use a traditional flexible spending account. You can, if DPC is available in your area, you can do that. But in today's world, for someone less than 50, it doesn't make any sense to take on that financial risk because you can't manage it. Mm -hmm. If you've got more than 100 employees, you've got, you could probably go down to as few as 50, but typically 100 is, is the number that you see. You should definitely self-insure your population. That way, you can run your own population health management protocol. You can be in charge of how you're engaging your participants in healthier lives. Because at the end of the day, what most people fail to realize is 75% of our healthcare spend is driven by lifestyle-mediated chronic conditions. Diabetes, hypertension, et cetera, are all caused by the fact that we, we eat too much, we exercise too little, we do things generally that are bad for us. And because we just are operating in a cost-sharing environment where I've got this copay, I've got this deductible, I've got this coinsurance, that's not reinforced because insurance truly is about sharing risk. So as an employer, you need to make sure that your plan design and your communication strategy with your employees really are pointing towards one goal, that goal being I need to get my people healthier because if they're healthier, they're typically going to be happier, they're going to be more productive, and they're going to do the things that I really want them to do for them and my company to be successful. 
most off-the-shelf plans from carriers don't have that design built in place. But that is interesting that they don't have that after all these years, you know. Well, what it comes down to is the first question you asked me, right? What is, a, what is a fiduciary? Well, if you were to go ask anyone today that's running a health plan of any size and ask them, who's the fiduciary on this plan? Many business owners are going to say, well, Blue Cross is or United or whomever their carrier is. Well, the fact is that that's not. That's not the case. The carrier is, by their definition, a rules-based transaction processor that is administering a plan based on the rules that you, plan sponsor, set, meaning what's the benefit guideline, and then we are then renting to you our network of providers to give you essentially prices. So the carrier in this case is not a fiduciary to the plan. If you ask any existing insurance broker out there today, they too will tell you we're not a fiduciary to the plan because they're being paid typically by the carrier. And you can't be a fiduciary to a plan where you're being paid by a vendor. Hmm. So what you have is a situation where no one thought that the system would blow up like it did and everybody's looking around and pointing fingers at people, but they didn't really know what they were getting into up front. So we have taken a very proactive approach to actually declaring ourselves as a fiduciary on health plans that we manage specifically because we are going to require certain things as part of the process and that engagement to known measurable. So if you took car insurance, for example, everyone knows that if you get three speeding tickets, a DUI and two accidents, your rates are going to be high. You're a risk. The same thing if we applied that to healthcare and gave everyone a, health score, if you will, by giving them proper access to a primary care physician and the common drugs and labs that they need to do that, all that's very inexpensive, can be done for less than $750 a year. And then people then understand, okay, well, my responsibility is my own health. It's a sad state of affairs that we actually have to say that to people. They should know that internally, but sometimes people don't. That's right. Chris, you piqued my interest with one of your previous answers. You mentioned ICD-10. I'm not sure if you know this, but I am the ICD-10 czar. I've appointed myself two years ago when nobody else would take over and be in charge. I'll also, since it's gone so well, take the credit for everything going really well the last month or so. And if it blows up in another month, I'll blame someone else. <laughs> but <laughs> all that said, if you were the healthcare czar, and you could magically replace the ACA, how would you redesign the healthcare system? Well, I think it follows into what I was just discussing and that idea of insurance, whether it's health insurance, life insurance, car insurance, any insurance is really based upon risk. And we have to under know that there are some personal accountability things that we have to take into account. So I would like to see the whole system moved to a way where you separated health care from health insurance because they are two very distinctly separate things. One you can buy from a provider. One you have to buy from an insurance company. And to think that we, and this goes back to, and Joe, since you're the ICD-10s are and it's gone so well, I can tell you that I was playing the devil's advocate in the Supreme Court 
conversations regarding the individual mandate. And when Justice Sotomayor made this one statement, I jumped out of my chair and I, if I had something of substance, I probably would have thrown it through the TV. And that is, in her inserting herself into the argument, she made the statement, and we have gone back and checked it so we know that this is accurate. So what I hear you saying is, because someone is going to have to access health care at some point in time, they're automatically in the revenue stream. So that means that in order to buy health care, you have to buy health insurance. And that was the entire premise of the individual mandate. And fundamentally, that's flawed. Um, you don't have to have insurance to buy health care even today. You can go into any number of urgent cares or providers anywhere around and pay cash. It's different for the provider. They don't necessarily know how to deal with cash a lot of times. But I think that if we did that and we made everyone have the availability of a consumer-driven medical home with then provider and patient being held accountable to the same outcomes, and we're talking about basic things, LDL, blood pressure, smoking status, and A1C, four very simple metrics. And if everyone was accountable to those metrics, both as patients and providers, well, then you can now create some type of a risk-adjusted pool of people that would then go to a market to buy their insurance coverage based on those numbers. So I think just structurally, if you just clearly separated health care from health insurance, that would do a lot to cure what ails our current system. What is next for direct primary care, and what can you expect to see as we head into 2016? I think direct primary care is going to continue to grow organically as it has to this point. It's going to be very difficult, in my opinion, unless you can get a large employer or a large purchaser of care in order to change how they're paying for health care. And that's going to be very difficult to do. Just based on what we've seen, we've worked in multiple legislatures uh, on the case. And the calls we get from the institutional providers, I hate to say it, they are taking the, the pure version of direct primary care, which is patients spending good quality time with the doctor of their choosing in a direct relationship versus I'm in an institution and we actually had someone in Louisiana tell us this, big institutional hospital says, we're looking at doing this because we want to take it, one, more towards concierge care to sell to higher-end consumers, but then also use it to increase their referrals into specialty care. Hmm. And that is fundamentally different than the pure direct primary care methodology and ethos as we understand it. Yes, sir, it is. Chris, as we're finishing up here, before we let you go, where can people contact you and learn more about what you're doing at Physician Care Direct? Well, really the easiest thing to do is, is go to our website, physiciancaredirect.com, or you can reach out to me via LinkedIn, quite active on social networks. So any way that they have questions about what they can do as an employer to change the direction of their own health plan, we're happy to talk to them. Great. Chris, it was a great pleasure to have you today. Thanks for stopping by and joining us. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Kat. Look forward to hearing more about what you guys are doing in the future. Thank you, Chris. And that wraps this first of our series on direct primary care. On behalf of our guest, Chris Schaffner, and my co-host, Kat Quinn, I'm Joe Lavelle, and we'll see you soon on Intrepid Healthcare.